I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. You are listening to Tech Time with Summer's F1, presented by Missed Apex Podcast. We live F1. I'm your host, Matt Trumpets, and this episode is called Slow and Tell. And I'm joined today by the hardest working man in tech F1, Matthew Summerfield, assistant technical editor at motorsport.com and known to all the cool kids onto Intertubes as Summers F1. How's it going today, Summers? It's going really well, thanks, Matt. But, you know, I missed you on the race review. I finally managed to do one and you weren't there for it. I know it was the rarest thing, but I had an actual other work obligation that I was required to be at. And sadly enough, I wasn't there to participate in annoying spanners fully with tire talk for an hour and a half instead of discussing the actual race. I did manage to squeeze in a bit of tire talk, though, thankfully. Yes. Well, I was actually able to watch it, so that's great news. But before we go any further, I do need to remind everyone we are an independent podcast produced in the podcasting shed with the kind permission of our better house, and we aim to bring you a race review before your Monday morning commute. We might be wrong, but we're first. And if you want to join the live stream, find Missed Apex Podcast on YouTube and subscribe. Click the little bell icon when you subscribe, and you'll get a notification when we go live. Now, we this is our first episode in quite some while. Uh, and I'm looking forward to it very much. But before we go any further, perhaps it would make a lot of sense to sort of talk about the big shift in the regulations uh, in terms of the aerodynamics and just sort of for those people who weren't following as closely, catch up on, uh, I guess, the big themes, for lack of a better word. Yeah. So as we've transitioned from 2018 to 2019, we obviously uh, encourage the team's to make some changes to the cars in order that overtaking or 
perhaps following should be easier for, for them to uh, do during 2019. So there's a number of changes that were made by the FIA to try to facilitate that. And paramount to that was trying to reduce the sort of mushroom cloud that you get that in the wake of a car um, in order that the one that's following the trailing car is less affected by that airflow and becomes less sensitive to it. So the, the, the main changes that actually occurred were to the front wing, the front brake ducts, the barge boards, which unfortunately weren't perhaps changed as much as they should have been, um, and then the rear wing. So there's, you know, several things there that the teams are going to have to really readjust to in order to try to get the best from their cars throughout this season and on on and towards the next set of, of regulations. So I thought it was just best that perhaps we, we have a look at what those changes really tally out to. So the, the main factor that we have is the wake that's generated by the front tyre because that has an impact on not only the car itself that it's attached to, but also the car that's following in behind. So over the last sort of 10 years, what the, the teams have decided to do is try and take the wake that's created by the front tyre and push it outboard in order that it doesn't go in under the floor and sort of destroy the, the performance of the, the diffuser um, to obviously increase the performance of the car in its entirety. But what that actually has uh, caused is a problem whereby the wake is then pushed outwards and, and makes it difficult for the car in behind to follow because then their front wing becomes sensitive to this this particular wake and destroys their overall balance of their car. So the, the new the new rules are all centred around uh, trying to improve the the wake profile and reduce it to to a more slim line approach in order that obviously the trailing car is less affected by it. Okay, and. Has that been generally successful? How have the teams received it? And if I'm reading it correctly, um, and I would imagine, as with everything, for every change, there's always some kind of unanticipated problem. Have we seen any of that uh, come up thus far? Well, I think there's two things to think about there. Um, one of which is the fact that the the rules that were made were done so in conjunction with the teams. Now, there's always going to be a political aspect to any rule change that involve the teams because they're going to try to navigate that rule change that will help them in some respects. So what, it, what we've ended up with is in effect sort of a halfway house, something that the FIA wanted but knew they couldn't get past the teams in its entirety. And that's why we've ended up with a lukewarm change to the barge boards especially. But on the front wing, which is obviously one of the key areas that people are talking about, the width of the wing has been increased to a full span. So the, the wing is now actually as, as wide as the car. And I think the FIA really didn't want to go down that route, but it was kind of forced upon them by the teams in as much as that they wanted that change so that they could try to recoup some of the outwash that they had under the previous regulations. And I think that's typical of what we're going to see over the next couple of seasons is a development on that side of things on the front wing. And all of the teams will be trying to push hard to continue to use this outwash because at the end of the day, without it, they destroy the performance of their car because they, they lose performance on the rear end as well. So I think that's predominantly where we're going to see a, a big push is on the front wing on the outboard section. All right, so that's interesting about the end plates because we saw some changes uh, even heading into Australia. So maybe now is a good time to sort of launch into that. Uh, obviously, at the front, we had Red Bull, Mercedes, and Ferrari. But it, it looked like Mercedes had some changes, and specifically to that area that you just addressed. 
Yeah, well, they made their first change with their B specification parts of the second part of testing. So we did already see them create this sort of notch on the end of the end plates. And the reason that all of the teams are keen to do this, um, these sort of management of the end plate and the flaps is in, that there's going to be quite a strong vortex that's formed at that edge. Um, and it's actually counteracting the, the, the sort of shape of vortex that they actually want to produce in that area. Uh, it would actually probably facilitate a, a drag of the airflow back in towards the floor. And so what they want to do is either destabilize or weaken that vortex or try to turn it um, into something more uh, productive than, than what's currently there. And so this little notch that we saw from Mercedes was actually uh, taken over onto the Red Bull design. They arrived with a similar design in Melbourne. And uh, Mercedes also weakened the aspect ratio of their wings in the outer section to try to, again, nullify uh, the strength of this vortex that's created. Okay, and their fundamental thought on wings uh, appears to be different from that of Ferrari and Alpha. Now, was there any change in on the Ferrari side, any, any changes from testing? That, that might give you a clue as to whether or not they're beginning to wonder if they, they had wandered down a wrong path with this. Or, and obviously Ferrari had its own issues, did we see any evidence that one model or the other might be what is trended towards across the whole season, or is it just generally too soon to know that sort of thing? Well, I think the interesting thing is, is that we've come to this first race with two designs that are really at either end of the spectrum. And what I end up anticipating happening is a convergence somewhere towards the middle. There'll clearly be a camp that stays at one end and a camp that stays at the other end because it suits their particular needs, depending on you know the circuits, et cetera, that they're, they're going to. But in terms of Ferrari, I think one of the biggest issues that Ferrari had, certainly in Australia, is that they couldn't put enough load on their front wing. They were struggling to get enough uh, load onto the front axle, and then that compromises their entire uh, setup, both aerodynamically and from a suspension point of view. So I think Ferrari, although they have a more elegant version of, say, the Sauber version, or sorry, the Alpha version of the, that particular front wing design, um, perhaps they haven't quite proportioned off enough of the wing to create downforce, which is obviously usually done on the inboard section. The outboard section is where most of the work is done in order to create this outwash. And so there's going to be sort of this game of cat and mouse between what teams use in terms of downforce distribution and what they use in terms of creating this outwash. So as I say, I think we'll we'll sort of see a convergence somewhere in the middle with, you know, still a, a little scale on either end. Okay, well... And fundamentally, it looks like then if you look at those two wings that they're trying to point the air in different directions. So Mercedes looks like it's sort of stuck with what it had been doing in terms of it's trying to get the air to go out and around the the front wheel. But then that sort of lowered section makes me wonder if Ferrari's trying to point that air initially in a different direction. Okay, so the outboard section of both those wings are different because they're trying to deal with the vortex that I've mentioned, the core vortex that's created at the tip where you, you normally get the, the, end, the end plate meeting with the flaps. So you're going to create a, a high energy vortex um, as the two sort of areas spill into one another. Um, Ferrari, obviously, and Sauber, sorry, Alpha again, still calling them Sauber, uh, have kind of created that really low end um 
conjunction with the the end plate itself and they've done that in order to try to neuter entirely that vortex because that you know it just won't propagate in the way that it would do on the mercedes whereas mercedes are still wanting to create that vortex but they want to try to manage it and turn it in a way that will be beneficial to them further downstream so it's just two very different approaches to exactly the same problem Okay, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, If I can, let's move to the midfield. Now, it's no secret that Haas has become a major player thanks to the Netflix documentary. And and, uh, Steiner was featured um, uh, post-show on Sky. He got a big, big thing where I don't believe we even saw him last year. But for me, the interesting thing is that despite being what many people describe as a Ferrari B team, they have not chosen to go uh, Ferrari's route with their front wing. And does that tell us anything about what Haas is up to versus what Ferrari's up to? And maybe give us evidence of, of um, who, who might have made the miscalculation if there was one, if it's not just different, different horses, different courses. Well, I think in some respects, you've started to see Haas step out of Ferrari's shadow in, you know, in the way that they design their car. Um, they're clearly going to have cues towards the Ferrari design because if you didn't follow their design trajectory, then it would be pretty silly, to be honest, because they are one of the lead teams and you're being supplied most of their components. So, you know, you would tend to step into their direction. But I do think that when you look at the likes of Ferrari with their front wing design um, you would classify that as a quite an aggressive approach but perhaps it's one that Ferrari took straight away and decided to run with uh, because they felt it offered the most uh, gain initially that they could then go on to work on whereas Haas and, and, and the likes of the other teams have obviously started out with something different and they'll perhaps project towards uh, the Ferrari design as I say I don't really think there's one that is actually better than the other it's just that they do different things for different reasons and so although Haas has decided to go down this route there's nothing to say that they can't start to pair the outer sections of their uh, flap section down towards the end plate and sort of try to tame that vortex that's being created so yeah I mean for me Haas is a very interesting team because they've made such a really good impression on on the sport in general and they've done it in a way that you know could be frowned upon but at the end of the day they've broken no rules uh, and they've made good progress yeah i mean they have gotten knocks from more than a few teams and team principals for their business model but at the end of the day i I think in formula one it's one of the things that's interesting because you have competition amongst the drivers competition amongst the teams but also Ultimately, you're going to have competition amongst your business and engineering models as well. And they just took a fresh look at the regulations and said, well, nowhere does it say we can't do this. So let's go do it and see if it works. Uh, And I do find it interesting because Alpha does run with much more of a Ferrari inflected wing. So I think that's maybe an interesting, uh, interesting pairing to watch those front wings evolve as we move through the season to, to see what happens. I think you also have to remember that we've got two teams that are owned by the same parent company that have gone at either end of the spectrum as well. Because Toro Rosso have a very 
a similar design to both Sauber and Ferrari, whereas Red Bull have gone on the Mercedes end of the spectrum. And, you know, they have both data points if you consider that they're under the same umbrella. So it'd be interesting to see which of those two teams decides to jump first in one way or the other. Um, or indeed, as I say, it's just a horses for courses scenario and you tend to end up with this sort of either end of the spectrum. All right, so I don't want to get into it too much, but we have seen the new regulations, all of the new regulations, run and anger for the first time. Is there a general sense amongst the teams or amongst the technical community as to whether or how successful they have been in their stated purpose? We always know there's going to be unanticipated consequences, but, I mean, have the FIA and, by extension, FOM begun to achieve what they were chasing when they started us down this path? Uh, I think it's a difficult question to answer because it's multifaceted as always. Um, At the front end of the grid, you have the likes of Mercedes and Ferrari who are a a long way away from everybody else. You have Red Bull who are trying to collect themselves up towards that end of the grid. And then you have the midfield battle. And for me, I think where the changes are going to have the most effect uh, are in the midfield battle because that's where we will already see the most close racing as such. So I think that will give us, again, another interpretation of how these rules have worked. I would certainly say that they have had an impact on the length or the distance at which uh, it's easier to follow within the wake of another car. And that will clearly then have an impact on how long that can actually happen for, because that's the other problem that we've had, is not only getting into that wake and being disturbed by it, it's by also... uh, extension the the way in which it hurts the tires of the trailing car and then that obviously has a domino effect because then they can't pass because their tires are starting to wear more quickly so for me i think we'll perhaps have more of this work out in the midfield um but it will be interesting to see when we do actually see a dogfight at the front how it has actually changed that approach as well all right well i I will bring this up now then because i i went directly and and read through all the after race reports on the team websites and as expected, they, they, they say lots, but me, you know, it's, it's all mostly, but I caught, uh, at least two or three drivers and yes, now fans, it is time to start talking about tires. I heard multiple drivers say the same thing. It's easier to ride closer, but the problem is the tires slide. They go quickly, they overheat and they slide. So it seems like perhaps the aero regulations are doing what they want, but that the tires haven't achieved uh, the same capacity yet. Although that is something that obviously I would imagine Pirelli will address as the season progresses. Well, as we know, they've got the five compounds to choose from in terms of you know what, what's used at each race. So they could make drastic steps between each compounds um, in order to try to facilitate uh, that kind of racing. But I think that the biggest problem that Pirelli have is actually the fact that there's now three compounds because the hardest tyre is effectively a throwaway for most of the weekend. Um, none of the teams want to run it because effectively it gives the, the least amount of performance. Um, and what they are trying to do is effectively run one-stop races. Um, you know, the, the debate come about after the race because of what happened uh, with, with uh, you know, Leclerc perhaps wanting to go in and take another set of tyres in order to do the fastest lap and gain that extra point. The problem that you have there is that there's a risk, a risk involved in making a pit stop, making a mistake and, in you know, either losing places on the grid 
or actually retiring the car. And so that's the problem that we have with tyres as well. You know, yes, there might be a delta whereby it would be beneficial to come in for a pit stop and take uh, a faster tyre, but there's a risk involved. And so unless the delta is particularly large, the teams won't take that strategy because it's just too bold. And until one team starts to be the outlier and actually starts to make more pit stops, it will then not encourage others to do it too. So, you know, I think that's the problem that Pirelli have. Um, everybody wants flat out racing, which we can't have because the teams are too busy nursing tyres because of the, the strategic disadvantage of making a pit stop. Yeah, but if they weren't nursing tires, they'd be nursing fuel usage, certainly. And if they weren't nursing fuel usage, then they'd be nursing getting the powertrains to last long enough. I mean, there's always an aspect of conservation, no matter how much of a sprint race we're talking about. But you bring up stopping uh, for the pit stops, but you, you mentioned the hard tire being a throwaway. But it seems like from uh, Ferrari's comments that, that Leclerc actually preferred the hard tire. And I wanted to ask about that because... First of all, I know that the tires have different working ranges and each tire has a different sweet spot in that working range. And I wanted to ask if maybe that was something we learned a little bit about based on that or if that was just because Leclerc had actually run on those tires in practice. And the second thing I wanted to ask about was a comment in Mark Hughes' column where he had an anonymous Red Bull person saying that the new tires were very stiff and that in their estimation, Mercedes were actually the only team to get them properly working across the whole weekend. Okay, so yeah, I mean, the the, the two things there are pr- pretty much interlinked. Uh, the reason that Ferrari were perhaps better on the harder tyre is because it suited the setup of the car, which they couldn't dial in for the, the lower range tyres. So the hard tyre from memory is... Um, uh, well, I'm not going to try it from memory, but it, it's got a much lower working range than uh, the other two tyres that were on offer at this particular Grand Prix. So it means that you have to work it less to be able to get the performance from it. So with Ferrari struggling to be able to get load onto their front axle, which meant they took rear wing out as well to balance the car, it meant that the car kind of came alive for Charles Leclerc in that second stint, especially as obviously he was starting to lose fuel at that stage as well because he's, he, he's continuing on in the race. Um, so going to Red Bull's comments about the st- sidewall stiffness, if the sidewalls are stiffer, it means that obviously you're not getting as much deformation, which means the tyres aren't actually, you know, the, the bulk of the tyre isn't changing so much so that the temperature isn't coming into the tyres. So I think those two two comments are kind of a, a, a little interlinked. And I think, as always, tyre performance is something that we will start to see becoming a major factor in the first few races, whilst the teams try to understand how to get the best from them. Okay, well, that that's actually fascinating. Now, it was much warmer in Australia. And I know that they also had new tyre blanket regulations meant to offset this a little bit. So... I, Pirelli changes things every year. Is part of this down to changes they have made in the composition and construction of the tire? Or is this just really down to it's the first race of the year, it's a low grip circuit, and it's very much a one off. So they never, they don't have enough historical data they can rely on. And it's a lot more just having to feel your way through the weekend. Yeah, I'd perhaps go on, on the latter end of that spectrum. Uh, just purely because we're, we're at the first race of the season and teams are really just trying to learn and understand their cars, let alone the tyres themselves. 
Our tyres are still somewhat of a black art in some respects because, you know, what one moment they seem to work and the next moment they don't. Um, and as we can see from what happened with Ferrari, had they known that uh, the harder tyre would have been better, they would have put um, Vettel onto that tyre as well for his last thing. So, you know, they, they didn't really know at, at that stage. And to be perfectly honest, Leclerc had already run a massive stint on the softer tyre. So he was primed to go on to the medium tyre in reality. And then they still chose the harder tyre because they knew that they could really hit it hard and try to take the maximum amount of life out of it. So, you know, that was running horses for courses, let's say, on the strategic element. Um, But yeah, Pirelli have such a difficult job when it comes to Formula One because everybody wants something a little bit different. And then you have each and each circuit becoming a problem based on the asphalt itself, the temperatures that can be changed. You know, so it's it's really a minefield for Pirelli to get things right. Okay, so before uh, we move on and talk about individual teams uh, in more detail, I would very much like to know um, if you felt that the change in oil burning regulations, specifically not being allowed to run oil in that extra in the spare tank which had previously been the case do you think that impacted qualifying to any great extent no because i think it's one of those things that was um a problem for everybody so it could kind of reset everybody in that respect uh, obviously it had some impact and i think we may have lost some performance we have to remember that these cars were supposed to be, be slower that the regulations that were put in place for these cars uh, for this year, I think the FIA were attempting to slow the cars down somewhat. And early estimations said that they would be one and a half to two seconds slower per lap, yet they're actually quicker cars. So it just goes to show that performance gain in Formula One is absolutely relentless. Um, and again, that might be another issue for Pirelli because they arranged their tyres based on the fact that the cars were set to be, you know, at least at best case, as quick as the cars that preceded them yet we've got cars that are actually going to go quicker and quicker so that could be a bit of a, a problem for Pirelli going forward as well all right well we've ignored it long enough it's time to talk about Ferrari and I'm just I'm, I'm just going to recap everything that I've heard starting from even before they turned up in Australia I've heard that there was a reliability issue I've heard that it was a cooling issue I heard they had to turn the power unit down I heard there was derating and perhaps more reliance on the ERS than usual. The front wing was being run at its maximum angle of attack. And that despite all of this, they were never able to achieve a decent balance in the car. So do we have any idea what could explain all of those things? Are some of those things wrong? Are they just rumors? I mean, what do we actually know? Fact from, uh, not fantasy, but you know, fact from speculation what do we absolutely know about the weekend and what do we think might be behind it okay so as always it's a multifaceted question isn't it especially when you come to such a difficult topic as the power unit because there are so many components that rely upon uh, one part working with the other and yes the the rumors were ahead of the australian grand prix that that ferrari was struggling with um the power unit itself overheating um, and that they would need to run in a slightly less uh, demanding power mode. Now, the speed track figures actually suggest that they were having issues in that respect, because if you don't, if you take not just only the works Ferrari team, but also Haas and Sauber into account, 
their speed traps figures were all pretty much in the lower end of the the grid, which is obviously uh, you know proof that all of those teams were struggling with with that factor. Um, whether it's to do with the internal combustion engine or whether it's to do with the energy recovery system is debatable until you look at what happened to uh, Sebastian Vettel in the race. Now, Sebastian was um, kind of struggling with the car on the medium tyres anyway because of the way that the tyres didn't warm up when he first came out from the pit stop. So he was in a domino effect. He came out, his tyres didn't work because they couldn't get the car in the optimum set of window, which I'll come back to later on. Um, and then that led to a problem whereby his energy recovery system uh, wasn't getting the correct state of charge. So every lap, and lap by lap, he was in a situation where he had en- energy holes um, in as much as that the MGUH and the MGUK were not being supplied enough energy for the demand that was being requested. That's what we call a D-rate or clipping. Um, and it meant that he wasn't reaching the VMAX of the car even. So on the straights, he was exceptionally slow. He was going into the corners. He had no grip. He was understeering. So he wasn't recovering enough energy during that phase to then allow him to be able to put the, the power down on the straight. So it was a never-ending cascading problem for him. And that is predominantly the reason why we saw him fall back into the clutches of uh, Charles Leclerc. And obviously Charles, on the other end of the spectrum, had a situation where his car started to work exceptionally well. And he was actually getting to the point where he had more energy available to him than perhaps he'd seen throughout the rest of the weekend to the point where we saw him catch up to the back of Vettel and perhaps Ferrari should have allowed him to go on. The problem is in that situation is he was perhaps too far off of the the drivers that were ahead of him to make an impact. And so obviously Ferrari had this sort of agreement in the back of their mind that they were going to allow Vettel to get the most points from the weekend if that was at all possible. So Ferrari are a very difficult read from from this Grand Prix because they've got two drivers at two ends of the spectrum. Um, But for me, they did have some issues, some underlying issues with the power unit that I think they'll be able to rectify going into the other races. I think they were just caught out by the fact that we were less than two weeks away from the start of the, the a Grand Prix when they found the problems either at the end of testing or in Maranello. All right, well, then I'm going to bring up uh, another Ferrari power plant that had a problem, and specifically uh, Grosjean in qualifying. Now, he had a pretty magnificent qualifying. He finished in six, and I believe he was seven-tenths off of um, fifth place, which was uh, which was a mighty performance for Haas. And we did see them start to come onto this level of performance at the end of last season. So clearly they've been able to maintain whatever it was they found. But afterwards, uh, I read that he had actually suffered uh, an exhaust failure uh, or a crack in his exhaust that caused a power loss. And and they estimate that he lost easily three tenths on his fast lap, which would put them less than half a second off of the car ahead and is even more impressive, I think, but also makes me wonder if that's not related to the issue that Ferrari might be having. Yeah, certainly these things are always interlinked when you have uh, the, the different uh, manufacturers running the same specification power unit. So what what you're seeing occur on one is obviously going to impact the other. Uh, but I do, I'm not sure whether Haas actually engineer their own exhausts. There are sections of the power unit in which that they don't always have to purchase them directly from the manufacturer. 
uh, based on the fact that their rear wing pillar design, etc., might be different to, say, Ferrari. So that could be something that was designed by Haas or one of their uh, suppliers that, that has broken uh, independently of what they bought from Ferrari. I'd have to check if that's a supplier issue from from them that, on that particular one. Um, but yeah, as I say, there are, there are there is a case there for it to be an interlinked problem. Moving on, then, uh, let's talk about Mercedes a little bit. Their performance shocked many people, um, myself included, because I didn't expect them to be that far in front. And I'm going to go with it's not just it's not just that they were um, that they were where they were and Ferrari was that far behind, but they seem to have found a fair amount of performance in the two weeks between the end of testing, how much of that do you think they were hiding and how much of that do you think they just had a genuine breakthrough uh, on on the way to the circuit? I think there's a proportion of which they were hiding. Um, You you know, everybody talks about sandbagging and testing is so difficult to read. Um, You know, everybody looks through the, the times and they immediately jump to the fastest times, but they forget to look at the stint lengths and they forget then to look at you know, or tried to work out how much fuel that the, the cars had on board at that point or how much cooling that the car was running and all these other parameters that are, you know, not easy to discover when you, you look at a, a spreadsheet to, to try to understand time. So it's always a difficult read when you look at testing. But I do think that Mercedes were holding back a little bit. And I also think they found a huge amount of performance between pre-season testing and the start of the season in as much as that they've on, they've basically unlocked the W10. Uh, the other side of that is it's that they've always gone well in Australia and Ferrari have always gone poorly. So it kind of comes to back to the fact that perhaps that particular setup of that circuit really lends itself to the philosophy um, and the race preparation that Mercedes put themselves under, um, more so than, say, the, the likes of Ferrari. So, yes, I, I firmly believe that Mercedes have found quite a lot of performance, but they were also perhaps hiding a little. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. All right. Well, and obviously the real issue that everyone's going to want to talk about when it comes to Mercedes is going to be Hamilton's floor. But also, I do want to ask about his start. He got a pretty large amount of wheel spin off the line from pole position, which is not necessarily where you'd expect it. And was there anything behind that? In the past, when he's had start troubles, the team has been quick to say, oh, we're going to work on it. We think we have some ways we can make improvement. I haven't heard that kind of language. So this is just, was this just something that was entirely on him? He didn't do a good job at the start and he paid the penalty or, or is there, have you heard, is there anything going on behind that? And then of course, what's the story with the floor? There's been a lot of talk and speculation about why Mercedes didn't replace it. And hopefully you have a little more detail and how much could that really have impacted anyway? It did not look like a large piece of body work. I'll start with the uh, bad start. And in reality, although we're calling it a bad start, I don't perceive it as to be one. Um, there was a latency in him moving away from the line, which was obviously caused by wheel spin. Um, what we have to remember here is that several years ago, we had a situation where the rules were changed to stop drivers just being able to press a button to, to get the car to launch off the, the, the grid box. Um, and we're in a situation now where it's an actual driver responsibility to release the clutch paddles. Um, Mercedes have got an exceptionally decent system, let's say, um, in as much as the way that their paddle shift system works, because they actually allow their drivers to put their fingers inside the, the uh, paddle itself to create a fulcrum. Um, which allows the, the the feel for the clutch paddle. Other teams don't go down that route, but you know that's what Mercedes have opted for, and clearly it helped for Valtteri Bottas on, on this particular occasion um, over his teammates. I just think it was one of those situations where he just didn't get the perfect start, um, and yes, that really impacted his race. From that point forward, he knew that to get past Valtteri, the, his only option was one of either strategy, you know, beating him in the pit lane or by um, a, another circumstance unfolding on the track, you know, a safety car, et cetera, which, again, for Australia, we didn't actually get one, which is quite unusual. So uh, for me, that's the, the, the real story of the race uh, because it, it was kind of over before it started. Um, once Valtteri had got out in front, you know, Hamilton was restricted to, to either following and accepting that fact or trying to beat him on strategy. Because unfortunately, when you're in a car that has the same capability as your teammate, you know, you're not going to make a pass on a track like Albert Park. You know, even teams with big offsets were struggling uh, throughout the race. So that, that's the problem there. All right. And, and now, and, and this, uh, these questions uh, also partially come from our Slack chat. If you're a patron of Mr. Apex, you get to be in a Slack chat and we have a technical channel and a Formula One channel. Um, and so both Paul Wright and Big Ray were asking about this, about uh, Hamilton's damage floor. And one of the questions that came up was, 
Is it possible that even Mercedes, with all of its resource, simply didn't have a spare floor? Because we've seen pictures of that area of the floor being basically glued back together at what looks like the last possible minute. So what was going on there? Were there park for May rules that didn't allow this to happen? Why didn't Mercedes replace the floor and instead chose to try and repair it? Okay. I don't know the answer to whether they had a spare floor available to them or not, so I'm not going to even speculate on that. Um, but a repair to that area of the floor is actually quite common. And the reason I say that is that the end, edge of the floor at the rear is extremely close to that rear tyre. And the reason that it, they, they put that so close is because of the way in which the airflow moves around that part. They want to try to suck that airflow out and inside the tyre to protect the diffuser from tire squirt laterally pushing into the the diffuser so for me it didn't really seem a problem for them to be fixing that area of the car however if they did have a floor on site maybe it wasn't the same specification as the one that they're having to repair because that's the other problem in part fermé regulations you can only replace something like for like so they may have had another floor on site but it may not have been to a similar specification as the one that they ended up having to repair um, the other thing is, is we don't know that the repair um, wasn't successful. We don't know whether this damage was caused by debris um, or whether it was just a failure of the repair. So, again, we're in a situation of speculating. All we know is that Hamilton responded over the radio around lap four that he felt that there was something wrong with the stability at the rear of the car, which obviously turned out to be this piece of floor missing um, and, and went on to kind of hinder him throughout the race because of the way in which that it hinders performance. Um, now, obviously, I put pictures up on Twitter regarding this whole thing, and then it went out on motorsport.com because I put those pictures on Twitter. Um, and I had a lot of people saying to me, well, why did he post the fastest lap of the race, sort of 15 laps into the race? Well, you're not comparing apples and oranges in that situation because he actually did his fastest lap on lap 57 and 58, you know, it's that time reference at that very specific point in the race. So he was fastest, but then Valtteri, the next lap, was a few tenths quicker. So although he flashed up as being the fastest, he might have been fastest at that very point in the race, but he wasn't really the fastest overall. Fair enough. And if memory serves me, wasn't that right around when Vettel pitted? So Mercedes would have been asking for the maximum from him to protect against the undercut. Um, I wanted to also get into if we're going to talk about that issue a little bit more it's very clear then that this wasn't an example of someone from Valtteri's side of the garage coming in and just accidentally standing on that delicate part to reach something off the high shelf so we're ruling out that possibility entirely yes all right well I what... haven't got my I haven't got my tinfoil hat on today Ah, uh, yes. Well, I, I couldn't help but bring that up because you do see some very entertaining things on the internet, and, and that was clearly not the case. But let's talk about Red Bull a little bit. Uh, they sort of, in a way, were overlooked with the disaster at Ferrari and the triumph at Mercedes. But quietly, it seems like to me, uh, with the exception of the Gasly mistake, they had a really, really good Australia. But the question I have for you was how much better was it really compared to say this time last year um i i think they're in a better situation if i'm honest um i think they 
have a better power unit to work with because they're working with the, with the power unit manufacturer rather than against them, uh, and which has been one of the biggest problems they've had uh, with the Renault partnership in the last few years is that they've just kind of just been rubbing one another up each the, the wrong way. So uh, I think that, that comes into effect. But having said that, Marco's actually made some comments afterwards suggesting that they've got problems with their chassis. Um, and that's not quite up to the scratch that they would have really liked it to have been um, going into the start of the season. So that, again, kind of proves the fact that they've got uh, this kind of kinship with Honda that they didn't have with Renault because they're already kind of playing up that relationship. Okay, now Honda had said it would already have an update for for Australia. Did they turn up with that, I believe it was a packaging update? They said they packaged too tightly. Uh, or do you know if they did or not? Was anything said about it? I haven't seen anything about it, but I do know that that was what they were attempting to do, um, just purely because they were having issues during testing. Um, so I would suggest that they'd already got these parts um, en route, let's say. Uh, I don't see any reason why uh, they would have not run them in Australia, because obviously then that's the fixation point for the, the specification. Um, going then, they would have to wait until they change a power unit or change it under reliability clauses. So um, I, I think it's kind of, I would suggest that if they, they did intend to run it, they would have had it on the car. All right. Well, you also brought up uh, Red Bull's former partner, Renault, and they seem to have a bit more torrid time of it. Uh, they lost signs to what was reported to be an MGUK failure. And Ricardo, despite doing his own race uh, quite a bit of damage, was also stopped early, quote unquote, for uh, for precautionary purposes. So my question is, have Renault made any kind of a step at all here or are they essentially just where they were or on sort of their linear development path with no real changes? Because reliability was an issue for them all last season. Uh, again, I think this is a situation where we're seeing Renault sort of plateau um, because everybody else has improved. You know, the level of everybody else has gone up and Renault has gone up, but it just hasn't gone up enough to correspond with the, the, the rest of the gains that we've seen elsewhere. And so I think that's perhaps, as you say, where we are with Renault. Um, they, they may find themselves in a difficult situation because Haas clearly are the the next best team in the run. Um, and Sauber, sorry, Alpha, done it again, um, are kind of making waves towards that end of the grid, uh, especially if we are writing as much as that there was an underlying issue with the Ferrari power unit, because then that will obviously give uh, Alpha another step up the peg. Yeah, it will. So let's bring up one more team, um, which is McLaren. Now, Norris did exceptionally well in qualifying, obviously with Gasly out, there was a little extra room at the top. But what do we make of this year's McLaren? Have they made a real step forward? Have they finally gotten some sort of cohesive plan going and are following it? And and what do we what do we see for them? Is that pace real? Are they going to be regular points visitors? Or as is often said about Australia, is it just sort of a one-off result at the beginning of the season and they're going to be grinding to grab that uh, 11th, 10th, 9th place? Yeah, well, my overall interpretation, and I may be wrong, is that McLaren have made an improvement, but much like Renault, it isn't enough to have leaped them far, far enough of the grid. And so for me, I see them sort of having made a very good uh, stab 
in Australia to kind of get themselves ahead of where they should have been. Um, but when you look at the whole grand scheme of things, I think that they're going to be more or less fighting in the middle of the midfield uh, with the likes of Toro Rosso and uh, Racing Point. And then in the fringes, when things go uh, in their right direction towards the top end of the, that uh, midfield battle. But for me, it's, it's just not a big enough leap. They have obviously made changes to the car in order to facilitate the Red Eye Power Unit better this year than they did last year because of their transition from Honda, uh, which should have really given them another leap forward. Um, but they still haven't made a big enough leap when it comes to the aero side of things. Uh, and that could obviously be problematic unless they can resolve some of those issues going into the season. Right. Well, that's interesting because they had been carrying as a matter of design an enormous amount of very draggy downforce. So it would seem that their first step would be to become more efficient and or to balance that out, especially because they're, they're stuck now, I would imagine, with a, with a Renault power plant, which is also going to be helpfully unreliable to boot. Yeah, it's almost as if um, they need a rethink on their philosophy. Uh, as you say, they do. They were carrying a huge amount of drag in the last couple of seasons when they had the Honda Power Unit on, uh, on board. So obviously that was like driving with a parachute on as well because you know, you, you've got a huge amount of drag. These new regulations are designed to actually make more drag as well. So if you already have a philosophy that entices drag and then you leap more on because the change in philosophy of the regulations adds that as well, then, yeah, they really perhaps do need to think about how to, to resolve those, those, uh, those issues, especially because, obviously, the Renault Power Unit is not one of the lead ones. Um, you know, they have to counteract that, much like Red Bull have been doing for the last few seasons, and now we'll have to go the opposite way now that Honda are giving them more performance. Well, that's a good thing to hear. Honda turning up with more performance. What say we answer a few questions uh, from the patrons? Anders would very much like to know if Ferrari did dial back performance for reliability, were Haas and Alpha running the same spec power unit? And if Marinello solves that problem, do we think then that the Ferrari B teams will be able to partially close the gap to Red Bull and perhaps separate from the rest of Formula B? Um, okay, well, we've kind of answered much of those questions throughout the show. Um, but in terms of the Haas and Alpha team having the same problems as Ferrari, as I mentioned, the speed trap figures kind of correlated with that in as much as that they were all down towards the end of the, the, the pecking order. So, yes, I do think that there was some kind of underlying issue in terms of the performance that was coming from the power unit. Um, being able to escape from the midfield pack uh, like a scalded rat perhaps might not be the, the easiest of um, situations purely because of the financial elements. Um, Red Bull have a huge resource behind them and will continue to chase the two lead teams. And I think they'll do it at a rate that neither Haas or Sabre Alpha will be able to keep up with just because they don't have the funds or the resources to do so. So I think we're going to quite clearly see uh, a sort of lead to Red Bull in trying to catch up and then, you know, the, the, the rest of the teams in there behind. All right. Sedge would like to know uh, if you have any stats on whether the cars were running closer together in Melbourne because he felt like it looked that way when he watched the race. 
And if they were, does that bode well for the rest of this coming season? Yeah, I'm interested to see how it unfolds throughout the rest of the season because the other thing that we have to consider that perhaps wasn't really shown to us around Melbourne is not only can the cars follow closer to one another, I think that's quite obvious. They were closer to one another for long stints throughout the race. Um, DRS is actually a lot more powerful this year because I have a much wider rear wing and the teams can have 20 millimetres more on the, on the flap section as well. So when DRS opens and they reduce that drag, they're, they're taking a huge amount of uh, drag and downforce off the car, um, which should obviously allow much more passes. Now, obviously, there's the problem that people perceive DRS to be contrived. But I do think what we'll see is, is the FIA will start to change the length of the zones to kind of tune the DRS effect. Well, that's what I hope anyway, because that's what we used to get when DRS first came out. Um but yeah, I think that will be quite important to how we see the races un- unfold. But there's still the strategic element that's involved in all of these things. I don't think we're going to see a pass on one back straight followed by that same driver re-overtaking that driver on the next straight uh, because that's just not how Formula One works. But I do think that, yeah, we are in the situation perhaps where we will start to see closer racing at least, perhaps not just so much overtaking. All right, uh, Toby B would like to know um, about Melbourne. We've heard about it being an outlier. We hear about it being bumpier than Barcelona where they were testing. He'd like to know how the track affects the cars and their setup. And why, in your opinion, why is it that Mercedes just tends to go so well at this particular track? Again, I think we're back towards the tyre situation, Matt. And as we've already talked about, getting into that, um, that window, that operating window, um, is vitally important to getting the performance at a particular track. Now, the one thing that stood out, if you watch the side-by-side uh, onboard video of Hamilton and Vettel's qualifying laps, is just how hard Hamilton had to work with the car. The car was quite skittish. Um, even on the straights, he was having to work the car. And to me, that's all about generating temperature in the tyres. Um, you know, because... In reality, you wouldn't want your driver to be working exceptionally hard. You'd rather have something that's extremely compliant. And so, you know, I do feel that perhaps the reason that we saw that particular set of circumstances unfold in this particular race is because of the way that the, the teams were able to set their cars up for the bumpier track um, and for the, the downforce level that's required. Um, you know, that's another thing that we have to remember is that the package that. Mercedes brought to the second test and ran in Australia is a very high downforce package. Um, and so it suited that particular layout. When we go to another circuit that isn't perhaps as, uh, or doesn't have the demands that we saw um, in Australia, perhaps we might see them fall back a little bit in terms of performance because they'll be overworking the tyres if they use that package, let's say. So, yeah, it, you know, that's why it's called an outlier because it's very different to what we see elsewhere on, on the calendar. All right. Um, you bring up tires a lot, and Pratik343 would like to know what we did manage to learn from the tire performance around Melbourne. Would like to know why Mercedes seemed to be so very, very good in the corners, although I feel like you're going to immediately point to the downforce response you just gave. And most importantly, he would very much like to know what Red Bull Honda are missing at this moment to be considered equal with Ferrari or really up there with a chance to podium on a regular 
position. Um, and specifically, he mentions Marco and the missing downforce. Was that just a miscalculation by Red Bull based on their experience with Renault? Or is there perhaps a more fundamental problem with their design that needs addressing with these new regulations? Okay, so first off, I think, yeah, we have to talk about downforce because, you know, it is a high downforce circuit in, in many respects. So you are in a situation where you want to load on as much uh, downforce as you possibly can, which was problematic for Ferrari because they couldn't get enough on the front end, which then meant that they had to compromise their rear end for for this particular circuit. Um, the reason being is, is that the flat inner section where they create their downforce perhaps isn't wide enough in order to, to get what they needed. In terms of Red Bull, um, and all of them, to be honest, I think you have to look back at the, the power unit performance as well because characteristically, you're going to have a situation where certain power units suit certain conditions and tracks. And for Ferrari, perhaps this just wasn't one of them. Uh, whereas for Honda, you know, it, it kind of played into their hands in as much as that their power unit operated quite well um, around the circuit, especially energy recovery side of things. They did seem to, to be able to respond quite well in that respect. Um, but yeah, as, as we've already mentioned, Australia is an outlier and trying to get a gauge of the whole season from just this Grand Prix it is a fool's errand because it's as much a fool's errand as it is trying to look at the times from testing and try to evaluate where, where all the teams are. Fair enough. Uh, Ray of Jottenheim uh, would like to know about the sound of the Honda engine and specifically think, he thinks it sounds different and he would like to know what architecture they change to achieve that and why it no longer sounds like a bag of marbles when they come off throttle and decelerate. Well, I always thought it was like a bag of nails were being chucked into the airbox, to be honest, because, yeah, you always heard the cylinder cutting. Um, Honda tended to do a lot of cylinder deactivation, uh, which is difficult when you're talking about a six-cylinder engine because the, the engine is already unbalanced because you have two pistons on one side of the block and what you know it, it just never really fits right um to be able to use cylinder deactivation in the way that perhaps honda were trying to force things forward i think perhaps what is interesting about the whole scenario with honda is what's happened in the background and the transition period between them working with toro rosso uh before they came on board with honda and how many engineers that have been brought on board by red bull to help with the overall project, something that McLaren could never convince Honda to do. But the whole approach with the Red Bull and Honda package seems to be a, an entirely different thing. Um, uh, and I think that plays a large part in how they go forward as, as a sort of community project uh, because they've got their own people involved with Honda. And that is quite a big thing for Honda to have accepted in the first place. And it will also be interesting to see how far they've inserted perhaps the likes of uh, a Mario Illion um, from Ilmore. Now, he was offered to Renault by Red Bull to help them with their project. And although he went on board and did some work with them, they kind of rejected his proposals. And it's my understanding that they've been working with Mario um, over on the Honda project. So, you know, that also could tie into the, the sort of gains that we, we're seeing from Honda. All right, we have one more. We haven't really talked about Williams at all, mostly because, you know, it's just, well, a little bit sad. But what do you, the Senna's cat would like to know um, 
although he feels they created the predicament there in themselves, do you think they will be able to survive to the end of the season? Do you think Kubica will keep his drive for the year? Um, and is there is there a, a ray of sunshine at the end of this tunnel for them? I think that there's many problems to the Williams situation. Um, Paddy Lowe going off um, on what is probably determined to be a sabbatical right now is is one of the biggest issues that they're going to face because they're now without a rudder. Um, somebody else is having to try to steer the ship in his absence. Um, the problem for Williams themselves, though, is one that you can trace back a long, long time ago. Um, they were very lucky at the start of the hybrid era because they chanced upon uh, a certain set of circumstances that helped their car to operate in the way it did. And they had the likes of Pat Simmons on board then, who's now obviously working for the enemy, let's say, over at FOM to, to develop 2021's car. Um, but I, I feel that there's some real problems in there, in built at, at Williams that can't be resolved quickly. Um, in as much as that, they perhaps need somebody to go in there who has an overall vision of what needs to be achieved and just go in there and deal with it. Much the same as Ross Braun did when he arrived at Honda. Honda in 2007 were an abysmal uh, organisation. Um, they didn't know wh which direction to go in. Ross turned up, started to restructure things. Um, uh, and although Honda evacuated themselves from the situation in 2008, obviously we had the Braun car of 2009. And, Subsequently, we've had Mercedes go on to, to as much success as they've had. Um, and I think that's the problem with Williams. They're, 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 cha they're scared of change. Now, I know everybody's gone out and binge-watched the, the Netflix sort of um, series that's on at the moment, but I haven't had time to binge-watch it. Um, I'm up to episode three, and I've just seen the, 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 the state of what's going on with the Strolls and Williams in the background at, at that particular time. And I think that just proves the situation at Williams. You know, it's one of frustration because people cannot understand what's actually happening, unfortunately, at that team. Uh, and, you know, nobody seems to want to take the ball by the horns and, and resolve the situation. Mm, yeah, it, it does very much play as being a cultural problem. And uh, they they really want to compete in Formula One as it was 25 or 30 years ago. And they don't want to change what they're doing because they're proud of it. But that's problematic because everybody else has. Yeah, I mean, one of the damning statements that I saw Claire Williams make in that particular part of the documentary was that in front of her entire staff was that Williams will not become a B-team situation, i.e. they will not do what Haas have done. And now that came at a point where they were talking to Mercedes about being supplied their gearbox for this year, um, which to me is a no-brainer, um, certainly in terms of being able to then put your resources in other places. Um, and, and it's an area which we've seen Williams struggle because they don't have the financial clouds that they need to climb out of the, the pit that they've got themselves into. So to me, they're either going to become a dying breed um, which fades out. I don't think that will happen this season, obviously. Um, but you can't see Williams being around to just troll around at the back of the grid forever. Um, as a company, and as their entire company, they need to be something bigger. And at the moment, the Formula One team is perhaps the, the worst case scenario for their entire umbrella corporation. Um, 
and they need to resolve that somehow. To me, the, the, the quickest way to resolve that situation is to become more of a B-spec team like the likes of Haas and take more components from, from the likes of Mercedes. Well, it's not even becoming a B-spec team. I mean, let's face it, Formula One already has a tender out for a spec gearbox. And Williams' insistence on designing its own means they're running aluminum casings rather than carbon fiber, which they could surely afford. And I know they will argue that they prefer aluminum for quote-unquote reasons. But I don't know. It seems a bit of a stretch to me. Yeah, as I say, I'm just dumbfounded by some of the the decisions that they've made over the last few years. And it reminds me of a situation that Williams actually had um, a few years ago with their wind tunnel. Um, and I'm not sure they ever really resolved. They were having problems in the coander exhaust um, era where they couldn't get their wind tunnel to record the results that they could get out on track. They tried in one race weekend, I think it was four different versions of a coander exhaust and periscope exhaust, etc., to try to get an actual read on what was going wrong. And they still never understood it. So if you're in that situation where you're not able to understand your simulation tools and the real world, then you know, you're completely lost against the rest of the teams who do have that understanding. But for me, as I've said, there's some deep line problems at, at Williams, and I don't think it's a quick fix, unfortunately. All right. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to come and chat with us. Uh, before we officially end the show, where can people catch up with you and what are you up to? Okay, so the best place as always to find me is on my Twitter feeds because I put everything on there first and it's Summers F1. Um, I've started to do more YouTube stuff this year, so I'm, uh, I've got my own channel doing that stuff. And obviously, uh, motorsport.com for some of the larger analysis pieces. Yep, and as for me, of course, I'm at MattPT55 on the Twitters. You can come find me and yell at me for being wrong about all sorts of things. My lovely wife has a brand new book out, at a Weaver Writes or Amanda Weaver if you like to go directly to your electronic bookseller. And please don't forget to check out our latest review on Missed Apex, which Summers was a guest on, but not me, of the Australian Grand Prix. It's a really, really good show. Uh, a lot of good content is out there. And remember, chicks dig heels, wounds cause scars, and glory is a fungible concept under certain philosophical precepts. This has been Tech Time with Summers F1. There's a lot to talk about. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.